Hello and welcome to the Manager Mojo Show. Steve Caldwell here and we're so glad that you're here. We use our mojo to really become greater leaders. Now, let's get started by listening to something good. If you really want to improve as a leader, I've got a great deal for you. Simply go to mojouniversity.com and sign up for our two-week trial. Take any of my courses. I promise you, you're going to get better. You're going to learn. Go to mojouniversity.com and sign up totally for free and try us out for two weeks. Hello and welcome everyone to the Manager Mojo Show. Steve Caldwell here and I'm thrilled to introduce my special guest today. My special guest is Krister Ungerbach. He's a, uh, Krister is a keynote speaker, CEO, coach, and global export, or expert in the language of leadership. Hard for me to say, I guess, today. Uh, but uh, prior to retiring at age 42, Krister was the award-winning CEO of one of the largest family-owned software companies in the world. His expertise is, and the language of leadership is based upon his unique experience as a global CEO, leading teams in three languages while observing and doing business with executives in over 40 countries, building businesses in six and living as three. Uh, he has shared uh, his secrets uh, and has gone on to win uh, workplace awards. He's won five consecutive top workplace awards and he's achieved remarkable employee engagement levels of 99.3%. That is like way above anybody that I've ever heard. His upcoming book, The Language of Leadership, Words to Transform, How We Live, uh, Love and Lead, will be published in the spring, and his book provides practical, fill-in-the-blanks approach to learning and a powerful new language of leadership. Krista, welcome to the Manager Mojo Show. Steve, I'm very happy to be here. I think uh, we kind of have a similar uh, feeling in terms of uh, leadership, a new definition of leadership, uh, is more about whether followers want to follow uh, rather than how, whether we define ourselves as leaders. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts about that today and especially about your new upcoming book. Uh, uh, before we do that, why don't you share with our listeners what fun thing that you've been up to lately outside of work? Well, I decided that I was going to do my first ultra marathon, which is a uh, I guess surprising since I had never done anything longer than a 10K in my entire life. Uh, but I was inspired to run my first ultra marathon, which I actually completed about three weeks ago. So, Wow. Well, congratulations. That, uh, that's a lot of work. It was, uh, yeah, it was an interesting, an interesting journey. Uh, I think that it was actually interesting. Uh, I know we're going to talk, but uh, I was... Um, at mile 31, uh, I was running this ultra marathon with coincidentally a guy named Miles, <laughs> and he uh, and he said, "So, what would you have said to yourself if two months ago 
uh, I had told you that you're going to run an ultra marathon. And I said, you know what? I would be dying to meet that version of me. And it just hit me that, uh, cause I, for me two months prior, I running even a marathon or a half marathon would have been an impossible feat, uh, in my own mind. And so it was, uh, it was, it was probably the proudest thing I've ever done personally. Congratulations. That's a heck of an accomplishment. And, uh, I can assure you, you would have buried me long before I got to mile 31. So good job. <laughs> and, uh, thanks for sharing that today. Now, Christopher, I know you've had uh, a tremendous amount of, of leadership, and I mean practical leadership in your own company. Uh, and uh, why don't you uh, tell us uh, at the core of your book, uh, how in the world uh, you got so interested in this thing called leadership and learning and how you were able to conquer the real problems of employee engagement. Why don't we just start with both of those and let you kind of share your thoughts? So I guess where I got involved in the language of leadership, I was uh, I had the opportunity to build a business in France and Germany and the UK, certainly after September 11th. And um, about four months after that, I, I, I'd learned French for six years in high school. And when I spoke French on the streets, no one would even respond to me in French. My French was so bad. So I thought, you know, I'm going to go down. We had a customer in Cannes uh, called the Le Palais de Congrès de, de, de Cannes. Uh, it's actually the host of the Cannes Film Festival. And I said, well, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to force myself to speak French because I don't speak English and I'm going to run a three-day workshop. And I got my salesperson from for the French territory called me on Monday afterwards and he said, Christopher, I, I don't really know how to tell you this, but they said, uh, don't ever send him back here ever again. His French is terrible. <laughs> and, uh, and so I got basically kicked out of my first or second, uh, second customer in France. And I immediately went about finding the best French teacher that I could find. And so Jean-Luc, uh, who's based in Spa, Belgium, had re- recently been named one of the, the, basically the best business French teacher in, in Europe by Wall Street Journal, European Wall Street Journal. And so he taught me how to learn French in record time, like business French. Um, And he did that by saying, we're just going to teach you the 1% of the language and kind of create these fill-in-the-blanks phrases that you can then use as you go about it. And when I kind of became on this journey of the language of leadership, I had to actually learn how to lead in French and then a couple years later lead in German, languages I didn't even understand at the time. And it got me really present and really detailed into the specific words that we use and how those change can transform our relationships with the people that we work with, uh, who work for us and with us, but also the words that we use with the people outside of work, our spouses, our children, parents, aging parents. And, and that's where the, really the language of leadership was born. Well, uh, uh, really uh, amazing to accomplish three languages in such a short period of time. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out English myself, but, uh, you know, hopefully uh, you can give us some insight into, you mentioned that words matter, and I, I agree they do matter. Uh, this thing uh, of language of how we communicate with one another, what was the one of the biggest ahas that you had by having a company with three different languages in it and, and your influence upon, upon those individuals? I think the, probably one of the biggest aha moments I had. So I joined this company. It was kind of a struggling company, and I was the 15th employee, and we grew to hundreds of employees uh, in eight different countries over the course of the, let's say, two decades. 
And there was a moment probably around 2007 or so uh, that when our company had grown to about 100 employees and I realized that my leadership style was broken, um, that I was just leading in a way that it just was not sustainable. Um, And I learned a lesson that I probably should have learned when we were about 10 or 20 people. And what it was is that what makes us successful or what was making me successful as a leader of kind of 10 or 20 people uh, was actually making me causing me to be unsuccessful at leading uh, a 50 or a hundred or more. And what I found is that in order to really learn the language of leading teams of 50 or a hundred or more, we actually need to unlearn the language of expertise. So, like when I'm running a team of 10, like everyone's coming to me with all the questions and my job, part of what I do to help make this team effective is I give them all the answers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if I've got a team of 100 people coming to me with asking me questions, I, there's no amount of hours in the day that I can give all the answers to make 100 people effective. And so I was at the, you know, getting hundreds of emails per day and flooding my inbox, you know, on my email all hours of the night. Um, as you can imagine, we're getting, you know, we had we were a global company at that time, so I truly was getting emails at all hours of the night. Absolutely. Um, mm. And and I just realized that th- there was this profound moment where I realized that questions lead and answers follow. And I was leading with answers, you know, and I, so I say, like, are, are, are you leading with questions or following with answers? And I was really following my people because they were leading me with their questions. And I realized that I can actually lead much more effectively in terms of my time if I just start asking powerful questions. So much so uh, that I actually uh, I call this thing called the... You know those uh, those magic uh, those magic eight ball the little toys that kids play with and they shake them up and it gives you know, like an answer like a you know, like a mm-hmm. crystal ball kind of thing. Yeah. So I call it the magic management eight ball challenge. And literally, what I found is that you could come up with ten or fifteen powerful questions, which I have on my website, and you could literally go into a meeting and just point your finger and put it down on the thing, and just by asking questions, lead a more powerful meeting than necessarily coming in and saying, I'm going to tell people all of the answers. Uh, and if you can imagine how much, if, if I'm working off the same 10 questions over and over and over again in my one-on-one meetings, in my group meetings, you can imagine it takes a fraction of the time to lead and prepare those meetings than it does if I'm trying to prepare all the answers for everyone. Well, absolutely. And I, I think that, uh, I, personally, I think it's a bad uh, philosophy for anybody uh, that's leading a small team of uh, under 20 as well to be just the, what I call the answer man. Uh, I don't think it works at any level, but most of us never really understand that until we're forced to do what you did. And that is, hey, there's not enough hours in the day. Why don't you give us an example of just one of those questions that, uh, that you started using? I think sometimes it's as simple as what are the three uh, solutions that you would suggest and why, or yeah. it could be, you know, what are, uh, what are the biggest obstacles that we need to overcome? Um, another one, you know, if you can wave a magic wand and you could have the perfect outcome, what would that outcome be? Love that. That's mm-hmm. a great question. And I think, uh, the, the fact is, I think most leaders, 
uh, really struggle with the idea of asking questions. And yet that's the best way in the world to really understand what's going on inside your own company, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think that what what I found, you know, and I was an engineer and I kind of grew up and I think that uh, at least in a lot of engineering fields and where knowledge and expertise is really the core of what gets people promoted. Mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, there's actually some neuroscience that shows that leading with this language of expertise, that it's kind of seductive, right? I, I you know, when they put oh, people, when they, putting it. when they put people in the, you know, MRI scanners and they kind of, whatever, take pictures of their brain waves. When you provide an answer, you have an idea, you get this little dopamine hit. So it's actually like having the answers is addictive in, 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 in a, in a, in a neurochemical way. Right. So, mm-hmm unlearning the language of expertise is actually requires us to actually let go of being the person who has all the answers. It helps us, you know, uh, being the person who has all the answers, it's, it boosts our own kind of self-esteem, right? So it's, it's difficult, um, to, to shift. Well, I, I know you shifted, uh, in, in your own work, uh, you've shared that, but how did you actually coach yourself to, uh, to kind of get over that ego uh, problem because you were the answer man for a long time. And I can imagine people kind of uh, said, you know, this is different. You know, what, what changed? I think maybe at a, I hadn't really thought about this exactly. Uh, I mean, I think that it's shifting the perspective of saying, getting that dopamine hit when you see someone else have an idea, Mm -hmm. you know, say, Hey, you know, it was my question that brought them to that idea, right? So I think that's one shift. Um, the other thing that was probably more profound, yes, you know, the other, there was another element, another experience that kind of shifted my uh, approach to leadership. In 2011, I did a, an anonymous 360 survey. So um, it was part of this thing at a place called the Bell Leadership so Institute. So he sent uh, this guy, Dr. Bell, sent a leadership survey to 30 people who had reported to me, uh, including actually um, family that didn't report to me, but you know, my wife and other people were included in this. And he uh, basically, I'm sitting in this course while he's describing my results, and uh, in, in, there are about 100 other people there. And he's saying, if your if your dot on this chart is up near like 200 then you were probably raised in an environment that was highly critical and you were given the answers and whatever. And I'm sitting in the back of the room and like 50 people are nodding their heads, in, me included. My score was 199 out of 200, right? <laughs> and so the interesting thing is he's saying, we just did a 360 assessment, an anonymous 360 assessment of all 30 people who report to you. And I'm telling you how you were parented based upon what your employees are saying about you. And he said, here's the point. If you, if your dot is up here near 200, then you're passing these same traits of this kind of hypercritical, always having the answer, not only onto all of your employees, but you're passing them onto your children. So you might want to fix that. And this is where this connecting the language of leadership, how we lead at work is often unconsciously how we lead at home. I think that's uh, an incredible insight uh, that, that you were allowed to have. And most of us, I think, do exactly what you're talking about. I, I know uh, in my own experience, I, I had to learn the hard way. You know, what I was doing was not yeah. working. 
And once uh, I changed, it did learn, it did work. Uh, but mm-hmm. one of the you learn these things. But what I what I think, uh, and and this is kind of where I think your your book is going to help us because it, it's one thing to know it. It's another thing to start transforming the way we act and the way we live and the way we lead. And you you have to be aware of it. You clearly did that. How were you able to successfully change this way that you were raised? This this idea and and actually increase engagement with your teams was it just the questioning that that helped you get increased levels of engagement from your teams i think the questioning well the engagement was kind of a, that was a multi-year process to get to um mm-hmm. i think that the it was really changing the questions but also just changing the words that i use yeah you know, i mean this is kind of cliche you hear it in a lot of podcasts but like not using the word should um yeah you know, I mean, so in my book, what I try to do is give really concrete language-based examples, say this, not that, don't use these kinds of words. And it was really, what I found is by changing my words, uh, I was actually able to kind of change my heart from the inside out, right? So what what happened is I think that we were able to grow successfully and the employee engagement numbers kind of reflected that. And I think it was the people who were closest to me on my leadership team, they knew that my heart was in the right place. But what I discovered, unfortunately, much later was that my words were not right. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of, I think we have this assumption that, you know, if you just, if your heart's in the right place, then your words will just automatically follow. And my experience is that's actually not true, right? I've met, I've interacted with and worked with some of the most toxic leaders. And I guarantee you that none of them wake up in the morning and look at themselves in the mirror and say, you know what, I think I'm going to be a jerk today. They, they think their hearts are in the right place. The challenge is that they don't know that their words are not. And that's why for me, the language of leadership was so critical to helping me to kind of really change, change the way I think from the outside in, from the words that I speak to others. So in your own personal experience, give us an example of a word that you discovered was not productive for you and that you changed. Well, so I was at a, I was at a workshop in, uh, at the Strozzi Institute, and in, in, so I'm in this Aikido dojo at like 95 degrees outside of uh, San Francisco, and they said, let's, uh, let's do an exercise. They called it the grab. Clearly, probably not HR-approved, the, the, <laughs> the terminology they used, but so they said, they paired us up, and I happen to have a woman, a female partner, so making it all the more uh, awkward when they announced the grab is the name of the exercise. So they said, you're going to take three steps back, and you're going to make a request of a person. And, uh, and I, I was like, okay, this is kind of silly. I feel pretty comfortable making requests. I've been making requests to people who work for me for 20-plus years. And I think the instructor saw the look in my eye and goes, you know what? And if you feel comfortable making requests, then I'd like you to pretend you're making a request of yourself. And so I said, oh, what do I do? Oh, well, you know, I am terrible about going to work out. So I said, oh, that'll be the example. So I walk up to the person and I say, grab her by the arm, which is the instruction to do. And I say, you know, you're lazy and undisciplined. You should go work out. And, she, and then they said, well, you know, whatever, talk through. And she goes, well, I didn't really, I, not only did I not want to go work out, I, I, I wanted to do the exact opposite based upon the way you asked me. Uh, so one, I was being judgmental with myself, <laughs> but then I was also thinking you should go work out. But what I learned in that moment was 
that the words we speak to others are often just an echo of the words we speak to ourselves. Mm. Now, my Amazon echoes, there's my Amazon echo. Um, so uh, the, well, That's well said, though. That is yeah. really well said. Uh, what we speak to others, we speak to ourselves. Very cool. And so even deeper, what ends up, what I ended up realizing is that as I kind of peeled away the layers on this, is that, you know, you start asking, I started asking, well, where do, where do I, where the words we speak ourselves come from? And this took me back to the Dr. Bell's, the Bell thing, the Bell Leadership Institute. The words that we speak to ourselves often come from our leaders, right? So when we as leaders change our words, we also are having the impact and our words are changing the words that they use when they go home to their families. At a great example of this, my uh, wife was working for the same company and the same boss for actually like 10 years and she switched to a different company. And I immediately noticed that no longer were we having meetings anymore. We would, we started touching base more. Right? Why was this? Because her new leader in the new company, they didn't talk about meetings. They talked about touching base, right? And anybody who's seen a good friend or someone kind of switch jobs or have a new leader, they, we start to adopt the language, right? Mm -hmm. But then even more profound was I asked myself, and who are our first leaders, right? And our first leaders are our parents. Uh, I worked for a family business, and I, my, my first leaders, my first bosses were my parents in not just an abstract sense, but in a very real, concrete sense. I was 12 years old learning how to program computers working for my father in the family business as my first job. And when I peeled back the layer and I looked at those words of you're undisciplined and lazy first came from my father when I was nine years old. And despite working 60 to 100-hour weeks for decades, <laughs> I still thought in my 40s that I was undisciplined and lazy. Now, wow. now that, was, that was before I uh, ran an ultramarathon, so I've, I've proven to myself that I'm no longer undisciplined and lazy. But uh, So this thing about words echoing and the words we use as leaders is, you know, our words have a very significant impact on the people we lead. And that's, you know, I think why, in large part, why I think we share a lot of the philosophy that it's not about uh, me being a leader. Uh, it's about inspiring people to want to follow me. Absolutely. I, I, I certainly we have that in common, without a doubt. Uh, Christopher, I know people are going to want to know uh, how they can connect with you and uh, how to learn more about your book and the great work that you've done. Why don't you share how it's easiest for people to connect with you for a moment? So I, have, I will have some things specifically for your listeners on my website at Christopher.com. Uh, so it's Christopher with a K slash mojo. Christopher with a K, Christopher.com slash mojo. And that's the best way to reach me. There'll also be links on where to pre-order the book or sign up uh, to get notified when it comes out in the spring 2019. That's awesome. And I know we'll want uh, to make sure to go get on that list and purchase it so that we can be on the list. So thank you for sharing that. And for those of you that are exercising right now, we'll be sure to include a link directly to Christer's website. Uh, take advantage of his offer. And I certainly know that I'm going to be getting a copy of that book for sure. Uh, Christer, uh, at, at this point, what I'd like to do, if you would, I'd, uh, would you mind sharing a couple of things that 
uh, specific examples maybe that you did to really engage your employees and, and start proving to them? Because I think one of the things that you had to do is you had to not only transform yourself, but in the way that you ask questions and the way that you led your own team of managers, I'm sure it had a huge impact on your organization. What were some of the things that you did to help them get some of the insights that you learned? I think the well, the first step was we did a uh, we did a survey uh, like an employee satisfaction survey. Um, as CEO, I can do that, but I think that the first step is to do some sort of at least semi-anonymous survey of employees, asking them what's working and what's not. And the question that we looked at most closely was the question. It's it would say it said, "I would like to be employed by the twelve months from today," and it was the the standard answer is strongly agree and disagree, agree, you know, like that Likert scale is what they call it. And so uh, when we first started, that number was probably closer to 70%. Um, at the end of five or six years, that's when we got to the 99.3%. Every single one of our employees except one responded positively to that question. Wow. Um, and, and repeat that question again. Uh, I would like to be employed how long? I would like to be employed by this organization 12 months from today. 12 months. So you were looking to say, okay, look down the road. Are you happy long-term, not just short-term? Yeah. And so we used that. That was our signal. And then we started, you know, so it, it's an anonymous survey, right? So the first step, the first year we said, if you didn't, uh, if you didn't tell us your name and you were one of the people who wasn't in the 80%, then please raise your hand, tell us. So we, we gave our employees permission Mm -hmm. to be honest. Um, we gave them the license to, to, to tell us what, why, why is it not working? Mm -hmm. um, and then the second thing is, I think it was powerful is a, a lot of the stuff about employee engagement, it's about pizza parties and ping pong tables. And yeah, we, we had all those things, but that wasn't really, what really drove it um, is there are two things. The research shows that 70, the manager's behavior accounts for 70% of employee engagement. So the simple answer is if you want engaged employees, build better bosses. So the the language of leadership, speaking to people, asking them questions, all those things, that's what drives engagement. Now, the remaining 30%, I think a lot of people who talk about employee engagement, it's like the leader's job. And we said, yes, it's the leader's job, but it's also the employee's job. And we gave our employees, basically I had them all together, and I said, if you're one of the 80% or 70% of the people who's happy here, and one of the people who's not happy here is talking at the water cooler about something they're frustrated about, you have my permission to go and say, hey, you know what? I'm happy here. And if you're unhappy, and the first step is to talk to your boss about why you're unhappy, and if you can't resolve why you're unhappy, then it might be that this isn't the right organization for you. Um, <laughs> this came from... A uh, story I read, I think it was in the New York Times like 10 years ago. Uh, they wrote about a guy who, you know, CEO was talking about how his happy em employees were so happy. And the journalist went up to him and said, so what's the secret to having happy employees? And he said, I fired the unhappy ones. <laughs> <laughs> and so we weren't going <laughs> we to just go fire the unhappy ones. But what we wanted to do was create an environment where our happy employees encourage the unhappy ones to get themselves happy or to leave. Beautiful. 
That's absolutely beautiful. That, and thanks for sharing both of those. Those are outstanding uh, examples uh, for all of us and uh, really appreciate that. Uh, Krister, uh, before we uh, wrap it up today, uh, here at Manager Mojo, we like to have an action item that we can go take an action immediately. We're going to buy your book when it comes out in the spring, but what would be your top recommended action item for us as a result of our conversation today? I'll give you two. Uh, one, which is a little bit more effort, would be if you've never done a 360 survey, do one. If it's the, it's, I think every manager I've done who's done a 360 survey, it has the potential to be a transformational moment in your career. Most HR departments and people look at this as like a disciplinary action, but the best leaders are always looking for their blind spots. So on a more practical level, um, the simplest way gets to the language of leadership. The simplest way to ask better questions is to make sure that every single one of your questions starts with the word what or how. It's very difficult to ask a closed-ended question or a judgmental question if you start it with the word what or how. My guest today has been Krister Ungerbach. Krister is the author of the upcoming book, The Language of Leadership, Words to Transform How We Lead, Live, and Love. Uh, it's going to be published in the spring. Make sure you go on the website. We'll have a link to make it easy to do so. Uh, get on the list and make sure you get your copy. Uh, until then, Krister, thank you so very much for your wisdom today. We wish you nothing but continued success here at Manager Mojo. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve.